Anyway, we are continuing our, our study through Second Peter today, uh, the latter half of the first chapter. And Second Peter is, is all about genuine and false Christianity. That's Peter's overall theme. And we're going to see him address that in a specific way this morning. But as we get started, uh, another little story about, you know, one of my sons. So my, my younger one, my little boy that's going into sixth grade, came up to me two weeks ago and he said, Dad, I, I need some help with my math. I'm like, oh, sweet. Numbers are my thing. Math. I got this. And so he said, here's, here's what I need help with. And I went, great. Go find YouTube. Uh, you know, I, like, I know, the, I know the, the information's back there somewhere. I've done this, but it's been a little while since I dealt with logarithmic identities, right? But the good thing was, is that I do know the information's back there. So I could take his textbook and flip back a couple pages, remind myself of something that I had known a while ago, and then I was able to walk him through it. And it, and it worked out well. But I could do this because math is math, right? It's objective. It doesn't change. These logarithmic identities are the same when I learn them as they are when he's learning them, right? It's, it's objective. It's truth. So that was easy. Now, that's not always the case, right? If some of my kids sometimes, if they come up and ask for help with history, now, that's a different, a different problem. Because the history that I learned and that some of you learned in here may not be the same history that's taught today, right? For instance, if we look at the definition of colonialism, right? When I went through school, colonialism was a good thing, right? That was an example of, like, bravery and adventure, right? This is how it was defined in the Webster Dictionary in 1828. Settling a number of subjects of a state in a remote country for the purpose of cultivation, commerce, or defense. Well, that's a good thing, right? You're going into a wild area. You're cultivating it. These are good things. In school today, same dictionary, the Webster Dictionary, this is how it's defined. The domination of a people or area by a foreign state, or the subjugation of one people to another. What was a good word is now a bad word, right? History is not the same as math. That, that shifts. That's what we're going to see Paul address as we get to this part of Second Peter. So he's going to say, look, you need to be reminded of some things. You know them, kind of like my logs, right? It's, it's in the back of your head, but you need to be reminded of them. But you can trust them. They don't change. They are truth. And he has to do this because there were false teachers that were circulating amongst the churches there in the first century in Asia Minor, where Peter's writing. And these false teachers were creeping in, and they were taking the gospel to an extent, but modifying it, twisting it, sort of like rewriting history. And he said, look, you need to understand how to deal with this so that you can separate the genuine faith from falsehood. And what these teachers were, were teaching was a it was sort of an early version of Gnosticism. It wasn't full Gnosticism. That came about in the second century. But, but this was an early version. And what they focused on was knowledge. And they said the path to spiritual maturity is about having the right knowledge and a higher level of knowledge, which we, by the way, can teach you. Right? And because it was all about knowledge, they separated that from behavior. And they didn't require that moral behavior be married with this higher spiritual knowledge. In fact, one commentator says it this way. These teachers claimed a higher knowledge which emancipated them from the claims of morality. And we'll see that fleshed out a little bit more as we move through 2 Peter. So Peter says, okay, if you're going to deal with these false teachers, I'm going to give you two tools in this part of the letter in order to make sure that you can distinguish genuine Christianity from the falsehoods that they're bringing you. Two tools. And those are that believers must be constantly focused on gospel truths, and that you need to understand where those truths come from and that they come from something that is objective and true and doesn't change, just like my math problems. So that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you haven't already opened up to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 12 as Peter outlines the first of these two tools. He says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. We'll stop there for right now. This is Peter's first tool to give the churches. He says, first of all, you need to be constantly focused on the truth. Now, as he's going to develop this point for him, he's going to do it by assigning himself two tasks. You can see that by the verbs he uses in verse 12. 
I will always be ready to remind you in verse 15, and I will also be diligent. Those are the two points he's going to make as he gives them this first tool. And so the first thing he says is in verse 12 is that there is a need for reminders. You need to be reminded of things. And that, that makes sense. That verb that he uses, the need to be reminded, is actually in an ongoing present tense. What he's really saying is, I will always be about to be reminding you. Right? I'm, I'm going to continually do this all the time. The important question then is, What's he reminding them of? He says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Well, these things refers back to the doctrinal points that he made in the first half of chapter 1 that Gary led us through last week. Just to quickly recap those, in verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1, Gary taught us about the divine enablement. This was the fact that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It came through the person of Jesus Christ. And because of what Jesus did, he allows us to be partakers of the divine nature. Right? In other words, to be made right with God. Now, if we had to summarize all that in one word, what would we call the fact that God saved us through Jesus in order that we could be right with him? The gospel. Right? If we had to sum that up, what Peter gave them was the gospel in verses 3 and 4. And then in verses 5 through 7, Gary led us through the call for continued growth. That was the list that Peter gave of all of those attributes that we should be pursuing as Christians. Moral excellence, a growing knowledge of God's word, right? Uh, brotherly kindness, love. He said, you need to be growing in all these things if you're going to be effective for God's ministry. Well, if we had to sum that up in what word, what would that be? The the day-by-day growing to be more like Christ. Sanctification. So in the first part of chapter 1, Peter outlines the gospel truth and the need for sanctification, and now he says, look, I'm going to constantly remind you of those two things, the basics of the gospel and the need for sanctification. That's what he's talking about when he says, I'll remind you of these things. So that's the the first part of his reminder. And then he gets to verse 13. And I mean, a reminder is obviously something that you already know. Right at the end of verse 12, he said, you already know these things and have been established in them in the truth. So why is he reminding reminding them of things that, that he is aware that they already know? What's the point? because they're being exposed to an alternate version of those things, to the false teachers. If you skip ahead just a little bit to chapter 2 and look at verse 1, this is where he's leading up to. He's laying the groundwork, and then we're going to get to chapter 2 in two weeks. And he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. And then skip down to verse 3. And in their greed, these false teachers, they will exploit you with false words. So that's where Peter's headed. He said, this is why I have to remind you of the basics. Because there's alternate versions of this out there that aren't true, and they're being pushed at you. So for you to combat that, my goal here is is a reminder. But it's not just a reminder. In verse 13, he says, I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. So first of all, he says, look, this is appropriate. It's good. It's necessary. It's not just me being paranoid about your growth or anything else. This is the right thing for me to do. And Paul agreed with this. Paul had the exact same thought process on constant reminders. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he writes to the Philippians, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Paul says, look, you, you need this in order to be safe. He had to address false teaching as well in some of his letters, and we've seen that addressed in 1 John as we've been walking through that with Tom on Sunday mornings. So he said, if you're going to be able to distinguish the two, I'm going to remind you of them all the time, and it's because it's it's for your good, and here's my goal for you. And I love what Peter uses here in verse 13. He says, I consider it right to stir you up by way of reminder. That Greek phrase, stir you up, is an interesting one. It, It literally means to cause to awake or arise in order to put into action. There's a great example of it in in Mark chapter 4. So if you recall, this is the account where Jesus and the disciples are on a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a huge storm arises, right? Jesus is sleeping in the boat. The storm is big enough that this little fishing boat they're in, they think it's going to capsize and they're all going to die. So they come to Jesus in Mark 4, 38, and they say, or the description is, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That verb, and they woke him, is this same one that Peter uses to stir up. Now in that story, the disciples were not just sort of, Hey, Jesus, it's time to get up, let's go. Right? They were arising him in order to do something because they thought they were about to die. They needed him to get up and perform some kind of action. We see the same thing in John chapter 6, another one of the, the nautical accounts. This is the one where the disciples are in the boat and Jesus comes walking on the water towards them. And when John describes it in John chapter 6, verse 18, he says, The sea began to be stirred up, there's our word, because a strong wind was blowing. So, Peter's saying, look, you need to be reminded of these things in order for you to get up and get in motion, right? Just like they wanted Jesus to get up and do something in the boat. Peter says, these reminders are not just academic. I'm trying to get you to, to get in motion with your faith, to be grounded and to be growing, just like I just taught you in the first part of the, the letter, he said. So he's trying to stir them up like a wind creating waves on a lake. That's his goal. And then there's one final point he has about these reminders. And in verse 14, he says, look, I'm, I'm reminding you, I'm stirring you up, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So look, the reason I'm, I'm kind of hounding on this point, churches, is because I don't have a lot of time left. Right? Peter, at this point, when he has writ is writing this letter, is in Rome. He, he knows his end is approaching. And when he says, that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, speaking of his death, is coming. And he says, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, he may be referring to, to one of two different instances, or, or perhaps both. In John chapter 13, it's before Christ has been crucified, and he's speaking with the disciples. And John 13, 36 says this, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Now, this might be a reference to Jesus letting Simon Peter know that he would be killed in the same way as Christ himself, by crucifixion. There's another account after the resurrection where Jesus is speaking to Peter in John 21, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus speaking to Peter said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. So in these two instances, Jesus has given Peter some clues to the fact that, look, your, your death is going to look strikingly like mine, and it's going to be a violent one. He's saying you're going to be led where you don't want to go. You're not going to pass away quietly in your sleep. You're going to be killed. And it's going to be a, a violent death. And yet Peter addresses his death by saying, hey, it's almost time for me to lay aside this earthly garment. That's a pretty casual way to talk about what he knows is going to be a violent death. That shows a lot of growth in Peter, doesn't it? I mean, this is the same Peter that when Jesus was going through his trials was so afraid for his own life that he wouldn't even acknowledge knowing Jesus. In, in violent terms, he denied that to preserve his own life. And now, knowing that he's getting near to the time that Jesus said, you're going to experience a violent martyr's death, he said, man, it's, it's about time to, to lay this earthly dwelling. It's a lot of growth there. Now, he, he may know it's, it's coming soon at this point because Christ gave him some other specific revelation, or it may just be that at this point, Peter's in his 60s. He's been ministering to the church for 30 years after Christ's departure. And he may just be able to read kind of the circumstances and know that, and I know that what he said, it was when I was growing old, I'm, I'm old for that, that time, and, and I can look around and go, yeah, it's about over. Either way, he said, this, this is almost the end. I don't have a lot of time. That was his urgency. This shortage of time brings Peter to his second point. So he said, look, I'm, I'm going to give you all these reminders. You need to know these things. I'm stirring you up to move you into action. And then the second thing you need to understand is that there's a need for diligence. Verse 15. So the second task he gives himself, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So that I'm going to be diligent, he says, so that, that after I'm gone, 
you can recall the things that you've been taught. Now, he's already told the church that they need to be diligent. We saw that last week. If you look back at verse 10, verse 10 says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And Gary led us through that. That was, that was Peter's way of saying, look, you need to be growing in your faith. You need to be increasing in sanctification. You need to be doing the things that you've been called to do. So we already know that the church must be diligent in its sanctification. We saw that. Peter addressed that in, in the first letter he wrote to them as well. But now he's saying, I'm also going to be diligent. Right? You have a role to play as members of the church. But he says, I also have a role to play. And my role is to make sure that you are prepared even after I'm gone. As a, as a member of the leadership of the church, right, an elder in the church in Jerusalem and an apostle, so he has leadership roles with all the churches, he said it's also right for me to be diligent, to make sure that I don't have to be here in order for you to grow and do the things that you need to do. I think there's two main reasons why this is so important to Peter, and he just keeps repeating this theme over and over. One of them is that Christ said to everybody that we all need to be ready at any time. We can't slack off. One of the times Jesus spoke about this was in Matthew 24. Jesus says, For this reason you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master finds being obedient when he comes? Right, Jesus said, look, you, you don't know when it's going to happen, so you have to be ready all the time. This is an ongoing process. So that's important to Peter. He heard Jesus speak about that on numerous occasions throughout his earthly ministry. But I think even more so for Peter, this is personal. Right? That's a general requirement that Jesus lays on all of us. But for Peter, it was personal. We know that when Peter spoke about the elders in his last letter in, in 1 Peter, that was a personal role for him as well because Jesus had told him three times, feed my sheep tend my lambs, shepherd the flock. And so he tells the elders, look, this is what I was given, and I'm instructing you to shepherd the flock. It was a personal command. Well, this is the same way. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus speaking says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Jesus, through his own words, says, Peter, one of your jobs that I will be praying for you specifically to do is to strengthen your brothers. So Peter, this is very personal for him, for the churches. He knows they're undergoing some false doctrine, that there are teachers there that are bringing in things that are not the truth, and it is personal for him to make sure that he can strengthen them to the point that they can tell the difference even when he's not there. So he's going to be diligent. Now, what was it that he was going to be diligently doing when he says, I'm going to be diligent so that after I'm gone, you can recall these things? Well, there's a couple things. He may have been referring to the letters that were, we just studied, the first and second Peter, to the fact that he had written these encouragements and these you know, educational treatises for the churches. He may also have been referring to the Gospel of Mark. Right? That's why we studied Mark with first and second Peter, because he was giving Mark the accounts. So maybe he was referring to that. He could also have been referring to his personal ministries, just his prayer and his own travels and personal encounters with the church. But regardless of what he meant, what he's saying here in the end of verse 15 is that when I'm gone, this, you will still be able to prosper. He's going to be working at this and be diligent right up to the end. He said, I'm, I'm not going to slack off here. I know my death is coming, but that's not a reason for me to say, you know what? It, it's been a long time. I, I've worked really hard for the church. It, my time's almost at an end, so it's time for me to kind of step back and just take it easy for the last little bit. No. Peter says, right up to the day that they put me on the cross, I'm going to be working to strengthen the church, to strengthen the brethren, like Christ told me to do. All the way to the end. So what does that mean for us? What's the application for us for this first point of Peter's? He says you need to be constantly focused on the truth. Well, it's, it's not hard to draw those because we are the church, and he's speaking to, to churches in general. And first of all, we need to understand that we need reminders of things even if we already know them. Sometimes I know it can be hard if you go and listen to a sermon or a Sunday school or a small group or whatever, and, and they're going over a passage, and sometimes we have a tendency to think, ah, I, already, I already know this. I didn't, 
not really learning a lot from this. I, I get this already. I, I get this a lot from my, my little kids in Sunday school. All right, so after this hour, we go and pick them up from the, the kids' building, and as we walk up to the, the sanctuary, I ask them, hey, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? And it's not uncommon, I'm going to be honest with you, for my kids to go, nothing, Dad. Right? <laughs> I'm like, really? You, you didn't learn anything. Well, what'd you talk about today? And their answers are, are sort of the same, like, well, it was the Ten Commandments, and I already know those. Or we talked about Noah and the Ark, and I already know that. I'm like, well, that may be true. You know some of the facts of the story, but was there really nothing that your teacher brought that you had never considered before, right? I'm sure there was something that was new, a different perspective, a different thought on it. Or maybe, maybe there wasn't anything new, but God just wanted you to think about that commandment that says, honor your father and mother. Like He just wanted to, you know, like, that one just needs to be in the forefront of your mind, right? So, but we're the same. I mean, we may not say it outright, but sometimes that's the way we tend to think. I, I already know this. This is kind of a waste of my time this morning. Not so much. It's one of the reasons we come to church. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another, sound familiar, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why he says, look, don't stop meeting. You need to stir one another up, just like Peter said. You need to remind each other of things with an an air towards pushing people into action, into motion with their faith. That's why we have not only the main church service, but Sunday school and small groups and home fellowships and partners ministries and a hundred other things you can learn about next week. All of those remind us of the things we need to be reminded of, either because there's something new we can learn or because we just need to be reminded about something specific that God needs to bring to the forefront. So what... What of those methods are you using to keep yourself reminded of the gospel basics and of the need for sanctification? How do you approach church on Sunday? What's your attitude? Are we doing those in a way where we, we fully believe that it will be beneficial regardless of the fact that we're talking about Noah and the ark? And second, there's no retirement in our faith. Peter said, you have to be diligent as members. I have to be diligent as an elder in the church. And when I say that, he says, I, I mean, all the way to the end. We can talk about retirement vocationally, that's fine. But there is no such thing as retirement in our faith in the Bible. It doesn't exist. We have to be growing and working and serving all the way to the end. That's what God expects. Because we're not going to be done until the end. Right? That's when we finish. That, that whole process of sanctification Peter talked about in the beginning of, of chapter 1 doesn't end until we see Jesus face to face. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. You're not done until you're standing face to face with Christ. There's no retirement in your faith are we still as motivated to grow and to learn and to serve now as we were when we first became Christians? For some in this room, it's been a long time. Humans have a tendency to sort of let the excitement for things ebb. But God says, that's not what I expect. So Peter reminds them, you need to be diligent all the way to the end. No retirement, continual growth until you're standing face to face with Jesus. So that's... Peter's first tool that he gives them to combat false teachings, the need for a constant focus on the truth. The second one he's going to give them is, is a natural outflow, and it, it happens in verse 16 through the end of our passage today, 16 to 21. Read with me. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
Now, this is a logical follow-on to Peter's first point, because if we're going to find any usefulness in being reminded of something over and over and being diligent in the study of it ourselves, we need to have some kind of trust and confidence that that thing is true. And if we don't believe something is true, then being reminded of it over and over again is, is sort of a moot point. So this is a natural response for Peter. Having been a, an elder in a church for 30 years, he knows what the natural question is going to be when he says, look, I'm going to remind you of these things over and over, and you need to be diligent as well. Especially in light of the false teachers in the churches, the natural question is, well, how do we know what you're saying is true, Peter? What, what if the new guys are right and you're wrong? So this is the natural next step for Peter to address. So he's going to address the fact that, look, not only do you need to listen to these reminders I'm giving you because it's for your good, but, but what you have been taught is trustworthy. It's like math, not like history. So his first point in verses 16 to 18 He's going to say, look, what I've taught you is trustworthy because God spoke to the apostles. Right? He, so that word for in verse 16 connects this section to the one he just talked about. Right? He's giving them the reason why they can listen to and trust the reminders that he's giving them. He said, here's the reason. Because we have firsthand knowledge. Right? He says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Cleverly devised tales. That word tales in the Greek is the Greek word mythos. It's where we get our English word myth. It's a made-up story. He said, look, there's some made-up stories going on in the church, but, but they're not obvious. They are cleverly devised. Right? He says, look, I, I get it. These guys coming to you, they speak well. They're charismatic. What they say even makes sense. They are cleverly devised, but they are made up. He says, that's not the way that we came to you. That's not what we're doing as we come and, and talk to you about what we saw. One of the commentators says it this way, that in their teaching, these false ministers were plausible and crafty, fond of rhetoric, out for gain, and excessively attentive to those from whom they hoped to gain some advantage. Peter says, that's not what we did and not what we're doing now. They have clever-sounding myths. We have first-hand knowledge. So you can trust what we're saying. Well, that begs the question, first-hand knowledge of what? Verses 17 and 18, Peter gives them an account. You guys may recognize what this is. It's an account of the transfiguration. This is going to be his proof for the fact that their first-hand knowledge is worth listening to. Turn back to Mark chapter 9. Let's just remind ourselves quickly of, of what Peter's talking about here. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. It's interesting, if you read Matthew and Luke's account, basically they say Peter was babbling. Right? <laughs> I mean, this is common for Peter at this point, right? Verse 7, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. So this is what Peter is describing to them here in verses 17 and 18 in order to, to back up his claims. And you might think, well, that, I mean, that's, that's nice. It, that's definitely an interesting story for Peter, but there were only three of them there. If he really wants to back up his claims about having firsthand knowledge, why not you know, give him one of the many things he saw that had a lot of other people as witnesses? I mean, maybe the resurrection of Lazarus, right? An entire town witnessed that. Or, or why not the resurrection of Jesus himself? I mean, that's kind of a big point. He got to see that, and then Jesus appeared to 500 people. I mean, that, you know, that seems like a better use of Peter's time. Why this one event where there was only three of them that got to witness it? It's because Peter has a, a very specific point. It's not just that we have firsthand knowledge, but he's making a very specific point about what they have firsthand knowledge of. And so the two points that he brings out as he recounts this this story to them of the transfiguration 
it's interesting to note what he leaves out. He doesn't mention the fact that Jesus became dazzlingly white and, and showed a glory that he had not in his human ministry. He doesn't mention the fact that Moses and Elijah actually showed up and had a conversation in his presence. I mean, those seem like things you might want to mention. He doesn't mention either one of those. What's the only thing that Peter recalls from that account of the transfiguration? The voice of God. That's what he's focused on. He says, look, we have firsthand knowledge, but, but what you need to understand is what we have firsthand knowledge of, and that is the very voice of God speaking to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, and his teaching is true. That's what he wants them to understand. All right, he said, we, we heard honor and glory from God the Father, verse 17, when he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He said, God spoke out of the majestic glory, right? That's the cloud that we, we see in Mark, Matthew, and Luke's accounts of this. A voice from heaven, from God the Father himself, says, this is my beloved son, right? Pointing to the fact that he was the Messiah. Luke adds for us that God also said, my chosen one. Peter's saying, look, you can trust what we say because we heard God himself say, Jesus is the Messiah. And then God says, and everything he has said is true because he says, I'm well pleased with him. God's not going to say he's well pleased with Jesus if he's been spouting lies. God the Father has just verified both Jesus' identity and his work. And Peter says, we saw this. We heard this happen. You can't get any more direct than that. So you can trust what we're saying. Now, a secondary reason for him to bring up this account, as opposed to some other story, is because he did see Christ in some of his revealed deity. And that's an important point because these false teachers, one of the other things they were teaching was that there was not going to be a second coming. Peter's going to address that in chapter 3. We'll see that in a few weeks. He's going to talk all about the second coming. But this is a, a foretaste, a way for him to bring that to mind as well and say, by the way, you know, we were acquainted with Jesus as the Son of Man, but we got to see a snapshot of Jesus as the Son of God. He does have divinity and glory, and we got to see a little piece of what's coming. He'll develop more of that later. So Peter's point here is that you can trust what we taught you in the beginning and not get diverted by the false teachers because it came from the very mouth of God himself. So having assured the churches of the trustworthiness of his testimony, Peter now turns to what they already had even before he came on the scene. Verses 19 through 21. He says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Prophetic word. Now what, what is he referring to when he said the prophetic word? Well, that, that Greek word prophetic is exactly what it is translated to in English. It just means coming from the prophets. So all he's saying is the words that the prophets spoke when he says prophetic word, and he says those, the prophetic word is made more sure. Now that is a, a phrase there that, that has some discussion about it. There's basically two camps about what this may mean when Peter says we have the prophetic word, the Old Testament, right? The writings and the, the, the messages that came from the likes of Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, David, Solomon, all those men that they all fully believed were messengers from God. He said that prophetic word is made more sure. What does that mean? One possible explanation, when he said made more sure, is that the experiences of the apostles, like he just related about the transfiguration and, and other accounts that they had with Jesus, have lent more credibility to the Old Testament because you can see in them the fulfillment of things the Old Testament talked about. So one possible explanation is that Peter is saying you can trust the Old Testament even more based on what we now know. The second option is, is that Peter is saying that the written scriptures are even more reliable than any experience, even mine. That you can trust what they say because of the very nature of the Old Testament scriptures themselves, regardless of what any other experience someone may bring to your attention. Now, I think that second one is what Peter is getting at here. There's a couple reasons for that. One is the, the Greek word order. So in the NASB translation, we read, we have the prophetic word made more sure. In the Greek, it actually says we have the more sure prophetic word. Now that 
isn't conclusive in and of itself, because even in the Greek that could signify one or the other. But the main reason why I think Peter is not saying, look, you can trust the Old Testament more based on our experiences, is because of all of his sermons and writings where he quotes the Old Testament and does not refer to his own experiences. Peter quotes the Old Testament all the time. If you guys have been following how many times he quoted the Old Testament in 1 Peter or 2 Peter, it's a ton. We know that from all of his other examples as well. A great one is the first sermon Peter gives on the day of Pentecost. Right, the very first sermon to the church, as the church gets off the ground, Peter gives this sermon, and you guys know the story from Acts chapter 2. After he gives this sermon, thousands of people are saved. In that short sermon that you can read in Acts chapter 2, he quotes the Old Testament five times. He never once mentions any of his personal experiences. If he was really trying to say that you can trust the Old Testament more because of what guys like me have seen, that would have been the time when he's trying to convince all these people that they're not drunk, that this is now the beginning of a new era. But he doesn't. He starts his sermon there with Acts chapter 2 and verse 16 and says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. He just recounts the Old Testament and he says that's proof enough that Jesus is who he says he is. So when he says we have the prophetic word made more sure, what Peter's saying is that the Old Testament prophets were reliable in and of themselves. He's already talked about how the apostles received their knowledge, their understanding, in part directly from the, the word of God, and now he's moving into the fact that that's the same way the Old Testament was generated. So he says you can trust the Old Testament itself because it's reliable on its own. It is more reliable than anyone's experiences, even mine. So, if, if that's true, if he says, okay, you can rely on it, then what is he trying to get them to, to do with that understanding? Well, the end of, or the second half of verse 19, he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He said, here's what you do with that. If those are reliable, then, man, pay attention. Focus. And the fact that he uses a, a lamp shining in a dark place is not new, right? Again, he's referring to the Old Testament, even in his proof of the Old Testament. Right, you guys are familiar with Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What people often don't relate is the next verse, Psalm 119, 106. For he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. David says, yeah, your word is trustworthy, so I'm going to do something with it. That's Peter's point. Pay attention. Like father, like son, David taught that to Solomon, who paid attention at least in his early years. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. Peter says, you, you have my experiences and you can trust those, but guess what? You have the scriptures already. Pay attention to those. They will light your way in this murkiness you now find yourself in where you're not sure who to believe. He said, believe what's written. Okay, well, that's great. Pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures for how long? Verse 19, pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What does he mean by that? Until the day dawns is a reference to the second coming of Christ. Peter talks about this a lot, but that's what he means by that. In fact, when he gave that first sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, I mentioned that he opened by quoting Joel. One of the verses from Joel he quotes is Joel 2.31, which says, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord dawns. He's talking about the second coming. In 2 Peter 3.10, we'll see it again when he moves into the second coming. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away. So when he says pay attention to the word, he's saying pay attention all the way until Jesus comes back. That's kind of a reiteration of his, his last piece of the first point when he said, look, you've got to be diligent to the end. Again, Peter's hammering this home for these churches. Don't give up. Don't slack off. Don't take a break. So pay attention until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. If it wasn't clear enough what he meant by the day dawns, this one is definitive. 
until the morning star arises in your hearts. What's that? Well, Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus is speaking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Doesn't get a lot clearer than that. Peter says, wait until Jesus comes back. Be paying attention to what's written for you all the way to the end. Okay? So that's, that's great. But again, the next question is, well, how do I know that what I'm paying attention to in the Old Testament is, is something that I should really be founding my, my understanding of truth on? So Peter moves, knowing again that that's going to be a, a normal question, to this foundational point in verses 20 and 21. He says, but know this first of all. Now, first of all doesn't mean in a linear time scale. It doesn't mean know this before you know something else. That phrase means know this as a foundation, right? Understand this before you build on it. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So prophecy of Scripture there, again, just referring to the Old Testament, the word for Scripture is a little bit different than the word he used when he said the prophetic word, but it, it just means the written part, right? So all these things that those Old Testament prophets received from God and have now been written for you in the Old Testament, none of that is a matter of one's own interpretation. Interpretation in the Greek is an interesting word. It literally means a pulling apart, an unraveling of something. What Peter's saying here is that they didn't get some information from God and sort of pull it apart and and twist it and shape it into something they wanted to say and then present that. And we know that there are people who do that. There are a lot of so-called pastors today in very large and well-known churches that take a little snippet from out of here somewhere and twist it, they unravel it, and they make it into a message that they want it to say rather than the message that God intended it to say. That's why here we preach through entire books. We don't pull little verses from here and there because we need to understand the author's original intent to make sure we're understanding God's original intent. But he said, what you have that's written, no one kind of took God's some information and and reshaped it into a package of their own and said, here's what you need to believe. He says, "That, that didn't happen. Okay, well, great. If that didn't happen, what did happen? Verse 21 For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter's kind of a a master at these word phrases. That, That phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit, literally means to be carried along or borne along by something. The idea of perhaps floating down a river, right? You're carried along with the current. There's a great illustration of of how it's used in Acts 27. Paul is talking about what happened to him and and his traveling companions on one of his missionary journeys. They were out on a boat in the Mediterranean as they're traveling between places and they're caught in a storm. And in Acts 27, verse 14, he says, But before very long there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurekilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Same phrase, driven along, that Peter says men were moved by the Holy Spirit. The idea of a storm wind that you can't fight pushing you in one direction and you're just going where it pushes you. That's what he says happened with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying these men weren't able to take what God gave them and make something else out of it when the Old Testament was generated because they were pushed along, carried along by the Holy Spirit who was doing what at the end of verse 21? Who spoke from God. Now, you see the parallel that that Peter's making in this point to his first point, right? When he said God spoke to the apostles, he said, look, you can believe what we say about Jesus because God himself verbally verified that Jesus was the Messiah and was teaching the truth. It was God's own voice. He's saying that's the same thing with the Old Testaments. All all the, the prophets wrote... They were driven along by the Holy Spirit who was giving them God's words. It's the same thing, Peter says. You can trust that too. It's all foundational truth. The scriptures, the Old Testament that they had even then, are God's voice just like the account from the transfiguration. No less so is his point. Okay, 
So, again, for us, what are the, the applications for that, that second tool that, that Peter gave them? The fact that the, the truth they have been given is trustworthy. Well, Peter has sort of masterfully created a, a foundational explanation of, of both Testaments, even though the New Testament wasn't written yet or not fully formed as he's writing Second Peter. But he just said everything you learn from the apostles, which would include Paul, right, is, is trustworthy. You, you can believe all of that because they came from firsthand eyewitness accounts that were all verified by the voice of God through Christ or, or the Father himself. So he's just set up a case for the New Testament, and then we just saw that he set up a case for the Old Testament as well. That is equally reliable without the need for experiences in and of itself, because that is also the voice of God, who is given to men who had no choice but to deliver it the way he wanted them to because they were being driven by the Holy Spirit. It's a great foundation for us. So what's the application overall for us then, for the the whole passage that Peter's talking about. Well, it's, it's not hard to see, but I mean, this is just as applicable to us now in 2023 as it was in the first century. Arguably, there is more false teaching now just because of sheer volume than there was then. And it is crafty. Some of it is cleverly devised. It's not all obvious heresy. That's why Peter wants us to be equipped even long after he's gone to be able to distinguish genuine Christianity from false Christianity, the point of this whole letter. If we're surrounded by this, then, then in order to avoid it, we need constant reminders of gospel truths and sanctification. Don't be disappointed when you come to church and the passage is one that you're very familiar with. God may just be bringing it back to the forefront of your mind so that you can help someone else, like helping my son with his math. Don't be disappointed. It's all for your good. Paul said it's all for your safeguarding. We need those reminders. We need to be diligent to seek growth in our own walk of faith. We can't get lazy. Ah, I've been a Christian for a couple decades. I probably know what I need to know. I don't really need to be reading the Bible every day anymore. I don't need to pray as much. probably don't need to go to church every Sunday. Definitely not twice. It's not really necessary for me. Peter would say otherwise. And Peter walked with Jesus. Be diligent to seek growth. And when you're studying these things daily to be diligent, understand that it is the very breath of God that gave you these, these doctrinal truths, these promises that he mentioned in the first part of chapter 1, that give us everything we need for life and godliness. They came from the mouth of God. What a generous and compassionate father to write this kind of a letter to his kids to make sure they fully understand his goodness and how much we're loved. If we're not spending time in that, then we're not doing it the correct way. And this isn't new, 2 Timothy 3.16, you guys know this. All scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God. Peter just gave us a very vivid account of that. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That means if you're not reading this, you are not fully equipped. If you're not constantly being reminded of gospel truths and the need for your own sanctification and that of your fellow saints, then you're not fully equipped. Romans 15.4, Paul says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, there's that idea of diligence, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have Peter wanted the churches to be equipped, knowing that he wasn't going to be around to teach them any longer. God gave us the same thing. Jesus came, but then he said, I have to leave, but I'm giving you the Spirit, and we have this. You're equipped if we spend the time to be reminded of it, to come to church and be grown up, even in stories that we've heard since we were six years old in vacation Bible school. It's never a moot point. It's never unhelpful or unfruitful. All of that is for our good. Hopefully that'll be the attitude you take with you as we go into the service. Right? All of this, all the songs you've already sung, all the scriptures you've already read, all the ideas you already know, it's all for your good, for your safeguard, to help us understand more fully our loving Father and 
how he sees us. Heavenly Father, we are awed and grateful at the lengths that you went to in order to give us your word. Written through the Old Testament by men that were carried along through your spirit. Seen in the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus while he walked the earth. And then in your provision of the Holy Spirit in order to take the written word and make it alive and applicable in our lives. You have gone to great lengths to make sure that we have what we need to be fully adequate and prepared to serve you in the way that we were intended to serve you. God, we ask for forgiveness during times when we have not been diligent, when we have taken our faith for granted, when we have not added our own time and effort to study your word in addition to that which is prepared for us. We ask for your forgiveness in that and a a repentant heart in order to help us to apply ourselves to the thing that is most worthy of our time. And Father, we pray that you would bless the time that we do spend in, in our own study and in all of the ways that you give us to study together. In the blessing that we have in all of the believers sitting around us that we can come together and, and encourage one another as we meet together. As the writer of Hebrews reminded us that that we have opportunities here to listen to your word preached in a way that is obedient to your intent. And pray that you would bless those times through your spirit, that it would be to our growth that we might serve you and serve the others around us. Thank you for your patience with us in that and for your promises that you will not stop growing us until the time when our growth is completed in Jesus Christ. We thank you for being who you are and pray that you would be with us now as we go to to worship you more, that our attitudes would be correct and that we would humbly receive whatever it is that you have for us to learn today, whether it's the first time we've heard it or the hundredth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.